Welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2018 Palm Beach Conference. Our speaker in this podcast is Admiral Gary Ruffhead, the Robert and Marion Oster Distinguished Military Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Silk Roads and Bad Maps, China and the U.S. and the Indo-Pacific, and it was recorded on February 7, 2018. Well, thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to be here and, uh, and also to be in Palm Beach. As a former sailor, I thought I'd start my uh, discussion with a sea story that deals with Palm Beach. And I think everyone here knows the difference between a fairy tale and a sea story. A fairy tale begins with once upon a time, and a sea story begins with this is no bull, but I cleaned it up a little bit. <laughs> so um, I was a very young officer serving on a gunboat on the East Coast, and we thought it would be a good idea to come down to Fort Lauderdale in December. Uh, we did. Fort Lauderdale, as always, is a extraordinarily friendly Navy town. I know that we have some folks here from that uh, great city. But we headed out when our visit was over, and we ran smack into a nor'easter that was coming up the coast of Florida. And it was building. We thought we, we could uh, outrun it, and it was a very, very bad piece of judgment on our part. Um, we got caught in the weather, and for those who are boaters here, you know that, uh, that a boat at a certain point will heel over so far that it just keeps going. And in the case of this little gunboat, that angle was supposed to have been 74 degrees, which is a pretty, pretty healthy roll. Well, we got uh, caught in some waves. She laid over on her side and hung and hung and hung. Uh, she was laying at 77 degrees and then fortunately snapped back uh, pretty violently. We broke some bones, we broke a lot of equipment, and the closest place we could limp into was Palm Beach. Our bosses thought we'd contrived that, but we really hadn't. Uh, it's, and Palm Beach has been the most welcome port I have ever sailed into. <laughs> Um, I will also tell you that that evening, some of your bars in town did a gang-busting business. But, uh, so that's, that's where I am. But um, what I thought I would do today is talk about something that is hugely important to me. But before I do, I'd like to thank Tom and his team for putting this event together and for your leadership of Hoover, Tom. Um, I would also like to thank uh, Bob and Marion Oster who through their generosity afford me the opportunity to be at Hoover and continue to work on things uh, that I believe are important for the future direction of our country. And as someone who does not live on the West Coast in Stanford, uh, but I live in Virginia, uh, I would like to thank Charlie and Ann Johnson for their generosity in creating the facility that we have in Washington, D.C for those who are affiliated with Hoover to do the work and to be able to uh, carry uh, the Hoover message and thinking into that important city. And I think at no time uh, has it been more important. 
Today I'm going to talk about, as, as Tom mentioned, uh, a title that I call Silk Roads and, and Bad Maps. And um, as some of you know, because I was down in Miami uh, a couple of years ago, uh, we're talking to Ernesto De La Fay and, and uh, the Davidsons, uh, even though I had bad experiences on the East Coast, the latter part of my career was really spent out in the Pacific and in Asia. And for the last three decades, I've had the opportunity to have a very close personal and professional experience with events that are taking place out there. Um, and I just thought I'd, I'd offer my perspectives on what's happening. And for those that were in Miami two years ago, a lot has happened in two years. Um, and I think it will continue at that pace uh, going forward. Uh, Russia is important. ISIS is important. Obviously, the burning issue that we're dealing with today, uh, North Korea, all critical national security issues. But I really believe that the rise of China, and I would submit that China has risen, but the future direction of China is the biggest strategic challenge that the United States will face going forward. Um, much of what I'm going to talk about, quite frankly, um, deals with the economic challenges, and I feel very inadequate being followed by some economists later in the day. But um, what has happened is that China has put together a strategy that blends economics, trade, and security together in a very coherent way. Uh, you can argue or debate that you know, they have a big debt problem. They have a demographic problem, which they do. As you may know, they lifted the one-child policy uh, law that they had. Uh, the year after they lifted it, and everyone could now have a larger family, there were 630,000 fewer births in China. So it's a little late to need, and having been in China when they lifted the policy and talking to cab drivers and shopkeepers, they said it's all well and good, but we can't afford to have a child. So they have that, that issue. But they really have put together, I think, a very, very good strategy. And I'm going to start kind of with a little bit of a, of a telescope. And I'm going to begin in an area that you hear about in the news a lot, the South China Sea. Um, why is the South China Sea so important to China? And how does it play into this bigger picture of the Silk Roads? And the Silk Roads that China envisions, um, and you'll see on the next graph what they are, but there, there are three of them. One is the Maritime Silk Road. And this is the most important part of that Maritime Silk Road for China. Because 40% of its trade goes through there, 80% of its oil goes through there, and if you also look, and unfortunately I'm not at a good angle to point, but um, you get up around here, and um, you know some of the major economic centers and where they're generating a lot of wealth um, is located there. You go a little farther up the coast, you get to Shanghai. So all of the major ports that feed their trade are coming in through the South China Sea. And so when we talk about how important it is, it's, it's really important to China. Now, there are a bunch of lines on there. The one that I like the most is this red one 
um, which is the Chinese claim to the South China Sea. And um, just so you can impress your friends, uh, you can talk about the cow's tongue, and that's what the Chinese call it, because it looks like the tongue of a cow. But they say that is all of theirs. For historical reasons, they believe uh, that that is theirs. But then you can look at the other colored lines, and you get into this area here, and you can see that everybody thinks they own a little bit of it. And that's what the problem is. Well, China is the big dog. So when you read in the papers about the Chinese building out islands, what they're doing is, is they are physically staking claim to essentially rocks that exist in the South China Sea, expanding them, and then creating military capabilities on those rocks. In the last few years, they have reclaimed 3,200 acres uh, in the South China Sea. Six of those uh, reclaimed uh, rocks now have 10,000-foot runways on them. So what you essentially have is about six aircraft carriers out here. But what it also does is it begins to put a bigger buffer in on the area that is important to them. And the other thing that's in their mind is that when they went through what they call a century of humiliation, when the West came in and invaded China and engaged in opium wars and things like that, all of those Western invasions came from the sea. And so the rise of China in the maritime space and its navy is also there to reassure the Chinese people that they will never be invaded again. So they're really quite serious about it. So, but what about the belts and the roads? Um, th this depicts the, the Silk Road economic belt, which is the red line that goes through the Asian landmass. And then the blue is what they envision as the maritime Silk Road. And it's, and it's more than just envisioning. The um, projects that are that are on the table for the Silk Roads uh, come to about $890 billion is what they're investing in this uh, strategy. To put it in context, if you were to take the Marshall Plan that rebuilt Europe after World War II, in today's dollars, that was $130 billion. So this is a big deal. But it's more than just um, uh, lines on a map. If you look at the ports that, they're, that, that they are heavily invested in and indeed controlling, there's one here, there's one here, and one right here, Guadar. So you've got there, there, and there, their biggest strategic rival in Asia is India. And they have a maritime strategy that encompasses that. They have also, uh, unlike the US, realized the, the resource wealth that's in East Africa, heavily involved in projects there, rail projects, port projects. Um, for the first time, even though they said they would never do it, they have put a military base uh, in Djibouti, which is at one of the most critical straits 
coming out of the Middle East in toward the Suez Canal and then uh, 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 on into the Mediterranean. Uh, oh, by the way, we're in Djibouti too because it's hugely strategic. So we have a base, they have a base. But that's the only military, that's the only overseas military base they have is in, in Djibouti. Um, not depicted here, there are two ports in Israel, Ashdod and Haifa. They have the controlling interest in those ports. One of the major European ports in, uh, that, that comes in through southern Europe, the port of Piraeus in Greece, they have the major investments in Piraeus. So what they've been able to do is to string together commercial interests, uh, security interests, to be able to ensure the flow of the sea lanes and the trade that, that passes from Europe um, into China and into Asia. I believe, and you would expect a Navy guy to see this, that the maritime Silk Road is far more important. 80% of world trade moves on the sea. This is some pretty rough territory coming through Central Asia. Oh, by the way, Russia thinks that that's their sphere of influence as well. So I think that, that, that the maritime piece is gonna play more, more significantly. Um, the other thing that was announced last week is they've developed, they have an, another Silk Road that was announced. It's called the Polar Silk Road. Uh, my view is, and a lot of people will say, well, it's because you can get from Asia to Europe faster on the polar routes. Uh, so that will uh, facilitate and, and make shipping more viable. I think when you do the economics and the math and you do cost per container to move, the fact that the Arctic is still pretty dark and nasty for about half of the year, I think the real interest in the Arctic are resources um, that are on the seafloor and, um, and then also being able to ensure that the gas facilities in Russia um, are protected and that they have a role in, in protecting that. But they're making a fairly significant push into the Arctic and want a bigger seat at the table on Arctic policy. So uh, what's not depicted on here is the third Silk Road, which is the newest. And you can see that they all move toward, uh, toward, uh, toward Europe. Uh, I put up another depiction here because I talked about how important the South China Sea was, 40% of trade, 80% of energy. If you look at these economic corridors that they're building, this one from uh, uh, in Pakistan that, that terminates in the port of Gwadar, they've spent uh, or will spend $65 billion on that economic corridor, rail, pipelines, the uh, economic corridor that moves from kind of central China down into Bangladesh. So what does this enable them to do? It enables them to move goods and energy and avoid the South China Sea. Again, fairly long-term view, but they're, they're not betting on the fact that they can control the South China Sea. And it's probably a good move because when you think about any encounter with China, uh, a lot of folks would say, well, it's good. you're gonna fight it out in the, on the East Asian space. Um, from a naval perspective, um, my priorities were to shut this off and work from the Indian Ocean. Um, 
and they're, they're betting on that, on that plan. So now I'm going to move to um, kind of how uh, things stack up from a military perspective. And I find this to be a very sobering chart, personally. Um, you know, we have had great allies over the years throughout history. We've won great wars with them. Um, but look at the size of what is now the Chinese Navy under PRC compared to the other navies that I've put up there. Uh, I find it stunning that the Royal Navy, you know, rule Britannia, Britain rules the waves, look at the size of their navy. Um, it is really quite small. And, uh, and with a force of that size, probably not going to come to Asia if there's a problem. But then if you also consider what the UK may have to face with regard to Russia and the Baltics, that's a pretty small navy. But, but China is building. This is the one I think to watch for, um, for Asia, and that's the Indian Navy. And I think that we in the United States really need to think anew about our relationship with India. India will never become an ally of the United States, but I do think that we can develop a relationship that is much more strategic, that we can work on technical military cooperation in ways that we haven't been able to do before. And it's not all on our, our head. I mean, working with the Indian uh, military, with the Indian government, is, is really a challenge. You know, as I used to tell my folks when I'd go into meetings, I'd just tell them to breathe deeply and, you know, keep your eye on the ball because they drive hard bargains and, um, and, and, and they have, uh, you know, domestic issues that they also have to deal with. But um, the growth of the, of the Chinese Navy in the, in the last few decades has, has just been quite remarkable. But then when you also consider the fact that the Chinese uh, Navy really has to worry kind of about regional things, and in the case of the U.S., we have to cross two great oceans to get where we want to go. So I put the PLA Navy Far Seas, which, which uh, is kind of the, the ships that can go a long distance, against our overall fleet. And, you know, the numbers are not too bad. The, what is not listed here under the Chinese is, you know, I mentioned I was on a little gunboat in my young days. Uh, they have about 119 of those that operate in the East and South China Sea. And those are ships that can still shoot at you and, and can be a problem of their own. But the problem that we have, because we have to cross two great oceans, the rule of thumb that we have to use is that for one ship to be in Asia from the United States, you pretty much have to have four to make that one. One is over there. One has just come back. One is getting ready to go. And because these are significant capital assets that you want to hang on to for 30 or 35 years, one of them is in a longer period of maintenance. And so this number really you know, drops down. And so when the administration comes out and says we want 355 ships, you know, I, I think that's a great goal. The challenge will be, you know, can they, uh, can they get there? Um, one of the things that we have going for us is our alliance with Japan. Uh, but on any given day, under U.S. 7th Fleet, 
those are the ships that we pretty much have stacked up in, um, in the Western Pacific to deal with the day-to-day -day events. And tragically, uh, two of those ships are out of commission because of some collisions that we had out there. Um, and I had the privilege of supporting the Secretary of the Navy in a review of, uh, of those incidents. And uh, uh, there are a lot of factors that come to, uh, to in, into play. But, um, you know, that was a pretty significant hit for the 7th Fleet to lose that force structure. So from a military-to-military -military standpoint, um, I think that, that China has a good plan. We have great quality. We have great capabilities. But I think we're going to be in a tough numbers game with China. From an economic standpoint and the strategy that they've put in place with the belts and the roads, um, the fact that, that they use all levers of their power to play, uh, I think, has disadvantaged us, particularly as we have pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a collection of countries that were like-minded and I believe would have been a, a uh, significant uh, block to engage with China on an economic uh, basis. Uh, the 11 have continued on without the United States, and the jury is still out as to how, uh, how that will play. But the way that China also plays uh, the game is there was a significant ruling in the Court of Arbitration in The Hague over the uh, South China Sea. And uh, the Philippines, under the past Philippine administration, took China to the international court in The Hague and they won an extraordinary case. It was a very bold ruling that basically told China, you know, you're in the wrong on a lot of what you're doing in the South China Sea. The reclamation, some of the fishing uh, incursions that were going on. The administration changed in the Philippines. The uh, Chinese went over. And $11 billion of deals later, the Chinese have backed off and are not pressing the case. Uh, so, you know, that, that's how China is going to play the game. But it's an interesting area. I really do think unless we get a good economic and security strategy moving, until we build up our forces in the Pacific and in the near term, I think that means moving some forces from the continental United States to the to the Western Pacific to, to bridge the gap that it's going to take to build some new stuff. Uh, we're going to be in a close run fight with the Chinese. I probably shouldn't have used the term fight or contest with the Chinese, but this is a, this is a struggle for who will dominate in Asia. And so I'm going to stop there and leave it open for questions. podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.